for joining Eubin Talkin'. I'm your host, Michelle Eubin. When you think about combating the spread of a disease like the novel coronavirus, the first things that come to mind are probably public policies and medical interventions. But communication is also a powerful and necessary tool in a public health outbreak. Joining me today on You've Been Talking is a global disease fighter and Florida's former state epidemiologist, Dr. Anna Likas. We'll talk with Dr. Likas about the challenges of keeping up with the public's demand for credible and relevant information, about new tactics that public health professionals are using to reach the public, and how they're combating myths and misinformation. Dr. Likas, welcome. Thank you so much, Michelle. It's great to be here. You had an amazing career, uh, battling Zika virus in the United States, polio in Africa, AIDS in Haiti, to name a few. What drew you to this profession? Oh, my goodness. Um, (laughs) I started out kind of uh, late, if if I might explain that a bit. Um, I was 41 years old when I decided to go to medical school. And so I went to the University of Oklahoma. I got my MD. I did pretty well and somehow managed to get into Yale for my internal medicine residency. Congratulations. And I kind of uh, laugh and say people are still slapping their head wondering who let the old broad from Oklahoma (laughs) into Yale. But um, they let me stay, and I did my three years of internal medicine residency. And then I practiced for a while as a hospitalist. While practicing in Springfield, Missouri, I admitted a 65-year-old woman who had uh, fallen off the deck of her home, had a deep gash in her arm, and uh, had been seen at her local hospital where it was sewn up, she was given some antibiotics, and she was sent home. Ten days later, she had presented to my hospital. No, she she represented to her original hospital complaining of difficulty swallowing, and that was interpreted as a sore throat. And so um, she was given some more antibiotics and sent home again, and three days later, she presented to my hospital. The ER doc called me, uh, was concerned about her, told me this whole story, and I said, I think we might need to intubate her. Um, And I'll be right down. And he said, intubate her. Her oxygenation is good and so on. And he goes, why are you thinking of intubating her? I said, I think she might have tetanus. And so as I got down and I looked at her, I called the surgeon to come and open up the gash on her arm and take some deep cultures. And yes, indeed, she did have tetanus. During the course of treating her, I came to discuss several times with the CDC treatment of a person with tetanus. And I got to talking to this woman there um, who was a specialist in the field, and, and uh, we talked several times on the phone. And she, we got to know each other somewhat as friends, actually, although I've never met her in person. And so she learned that I spoke French, that I had uh, uh, been a Peace Corps volunteer in my younger days and was interested in living and working outside of the United States. And so she talked me into quitting my job and becoming a STOP team member, which is Stop Transmission of Polio. It's a volunteer position. I worked at it for three years, and I went back to the country where I had been a Peace Corps volunteer, which is the Democratic Republic of Congo. Wow. And so when I was there, that was my introduction to public health. 
and during those three months working in the Congo, I really came to see and understand how much greater of an impact I could have on people's health by doing the public health route rather than seeing patients one at a time as a clinician. And I have to say, I, I still have that, that drive and that um, impression of public health. I have missed seeing patients one-on-one. There's a, there's a certain amount of, um, uh, I don't know, uh, good feeling that you get when you're, when you're really impacting a person's life and you can see that. In public health, you don't always get to see the people that you're impacting, but it has a much broader and greater uh, extent. And so with that, I came up with the motto I've used for my life since I've had the fortunate um, time to be both a clinician as well as a public health worker. And I, in all honesty, I stole this from the Air Force. Um, it says, to cure disease is glory. And, and it really is. To, to help someone get over an illness is a really great feeling. But to prevent disease is victory. And I very much believe that. That's beautiful. So I'd like to draw some parallels between my profession of communications and your profession of disease fighting. Uh, When an outbreak occurs, getting accurate information out to the public is critical. I mean, people want to know what's happening, who's affected, what the risk level is, uh, what they can do to to prevent uh, the disease affecting them. But you can't move faster than the speed of accuracy. You have to have good information to get out to the public. And sometimes that leaves an information gap that others fill with bad information. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about getting information out when a disease outbreak occurs. Oh, everything you listed there was just so right. We, We have to get accurate information out quickly really rapidly to help people protect themselves and their families and just to become aware of of what's going on it is difficult when you when you don't have all the answers but i think as as the many people who have uh, from your profession who have advised me over the years i do think it's important that health professionals the experts speak honestly And if they don't know something, they have to say, we just don't know. We're working on it. We're trying to get those answers. But but in all honesty, that's an area that we are not informed about as yet. And that's the, the, the hole that is left open that is filled by research and the, and the very vital role that research, which is a word that usually conjures up mad scientists and beakers overflowing with, you know, fumes and stuff. But research can just mean collecting data and analyzing that data and seeing how that can help us in in combating any new uh, infection or infectious disease that's causing an outbreak. I think one challenge that we're seeing right now is that uh, journalism is under attack, science is under attack, and there is a distrust of traditional authority figures. And that makes it harder uh, when it's so important that people are getting their information from a credible source that's only uh, sharing the information that's validated as quickly as they can, uh, sharing answers when they have them. Yeah, I agree. I, I wished for, I wish there was some kind of electronic device that could uh, 
you know, kind of like a meter. Yeah, a truthometer, <laughs> like kind of like a lie detector for people, you know, but you can use it on the internet that like, this is a bogus site. This is a good site. <laughs> believe this one. Don't believe that one. You know, that would be wonderful. But I, you know, I think with all of our, all of the context of our life, you know, uh, freedom of speech, we can't hamper that. And, and that includes sometimes the fact that we have to live with bad information that's out there. We try to, we try to fight that with data. I'm, I'm a big data freak, and um, I like analyzing it. I like interpreting it. And with all of that background, I try to make decisions for myself, and I try to inform those around me as best I can. So coronavirus has been dominating the headlines, and it's really been fueling public fears. Uh, and, and research shows that when people are driven by fear, they don't necessarily make the best decisions. Uh, it, it's interesting to look at the World Health Organization site and the CDC site and see how uh, much of the information they're having to put out there is not just, here's what we know and here's what to do, but no, don't believe that. Uh, just kind of combating some of those fear-based uh, actions like the the run on buying face masks. Mm -hmm. So, talk to me a little bit about how public health officials uh, can combat fear-based thinking when they're confronting an outbreak. Wow! <laughs> if I knew how to do it a hundred percent, then we'd have a different situation, I'm sure. But um, number one is I think getting what they do know out to the public as quickly as they know it. So people um, don't think they're hiding information. Exactly, exactly. And I, I, I know you're right in saying there is a fair amount of distress. And I remember when when I completed medical school, I, you know, at, at that time there was a phrase, I even had a button that said, trust me, I'm a doctor. <laughs> you know, and that doesn't happen so much anymore. Um, but I do believe that certain people and personality types can generate trust in the population. And I think sometimes what agencies need to do is to really look at their staff and their knowledge experts. And sometimes a person who is most knowledgeable is not necessarily the one who comes across as being the most trustworthy to the public in Very general. Very good point. And so I think, I think you need to select people that, that have that, that savoir faire that, that says, trust me, I'm, I'm going to level with you. And I'm going to level with you so much so that if, if I don't know the answer to your question, I'm going to tell you that, but then I'm going to go find out the answer if it's knowable. And if it's not, we're going to try to do some research to find out what it is. And I think I think that having that trust is just so very, very crucial to, to um, combating any kind of outbreak from the very beginning onward. I remember when I was a clinician, I, I, I used to tell a story with, with um, people I was teaching in, in clinical medicine that you know, if I was a, I'm an internist and I have a patient walk into my office who weighs 400 pounds, he believes the, 
three major food groups are potato chips and, you know, French fries and... Um, Budweiser. Yeah, and, and, you know, exercise is watching a football game and, you know, sits on the couch. And, 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 but he comes to see me because he has an ingrown toenail. I'm going to treat that ingrown toenail with just all the dedication I can muster in the world. It's not his biggest problem. It, by far, it's not. But he's not going to listen to me unless I take care of that toenail, unless I take care of his concerns first. And once that is done, then maybe we can develop that relationship that's going to result in um, you know, addressing his activity and nutritional and needs. And being influential. Exactly. Your point about putting the right messenger out there that can be trustworthy, the choice of a messenger and then the nuancing of the message is so critical in, in a public health emergency. Uh, we do media training and so we collect uh, interview segments where we show somebody doing something right and someone doing something wrong. And not to get political at all, but one of, one of the segments that we love to use was back during the H1N1 outbreak and uh, you know, again, public fear was high, and Vice President Joe Biden was sent on the morning show circuit to just kind of tamp things down and uh, give people a sense that we've got this, it's okay. Um, and so the interviewer asks him what he would advise members of his own family about air travel. I would tell members of my family, and I have, I wouldn't go anywhere in confined places now. It's not that it's going to Mexico, it's you're in a confined aircraft. When one person sneezes, it goes all the way through the aircraft. That's me. Well, I'm sure the administration was just dying. You know, this was the opposite of what they sent him out to do. But it just shows that the messenger has to be prepared and they've got to be able to... Um, be accurate, uh, but at the same time, tamp down fears. That's correct. Uh, during H1N1, I was actually living in Africa, in, in Ivory Coast, and so I was watching all of this go on um, in other places. And and uh, the thing with the airplanes, I mean, I remember, oh, back when I first started kind of looking, I was a medical student, actually, and looking at public health. And there had been a study about tuberculosis transmission on airplanes. Now, tuberculosis is an airborne uh, bacterium. It, it, it can be transmitted fairly easily. And yet what they found on airplanes, and people always talk about the recycled air and so on. Yes, it's recycled. But on an airplane, if a person with TB gets on plane, the people that are most at risk are those like three people in front and on the sides of him mm. or her. Um, it doesn't spread. We also found that it really, people don't get infected from a person on an airplane unless it's like a transcontinental flight. Long time with Long them. Long time in the air. So you've got to have not just somebody who's infectious there, but you have to have time and distance uh, factored into the transmission of that. One of the things well. that I've heard about the you know the run on face masks and everyone you know deciding whether they should wear a face mask when they get on an airplane that was interesting to me is that face masks are less effective for the person who's not sick to not catch it more effective if you are sick and get on an airplane and you're wearing a face mask 
to avoid transmitting to other people. So maybe the education point needs to be, if you've got any kind of a, an illness at all, stay home if you can, but if you can't, wear a mask. Thank you so much for bringing that up. I have watched so many news clips in, in Asia, and I, I did an outbreak response in Vietnam, and everybody there was wearing these cloth face masks. And if it f makes you feel more protected, fine do it, but I think people really need to understand that when you wear a, one of those rectangular face masks that with the elastic goes over your ears, like you see docs wearing in surgery, a surgical medical mask, that type of mask protects the world from you. <laughs> Not you from the world, but the world from anything you have. That's why doctors wear them in surgery is that you've got a body open, you still got to breathe, and it's catching anything you, the doctor, might have from dropping down into the, the, the body in front of them. If you want to protect yourself from the world, what you need is commonly referred to as an N95 respirator mask. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the, uh, I saw some of the news uh, reels from uh, the, passengers from the Diamond Princess coming back mm -hmm. and they had masks on and there was a little central hole and I, I looked at those and I thought that looks like the N95 respirator and that would be appropriate. You'd never want to put an N95 respirator though on someone who has respiratory symptoms. I've worn N95 respirators, they are tiring. You, mm -hmm. There's a work of breathing to get air to move through that mask and, and after several hours it can get kind of tiring. So someone who's got respiratory compromise is going to have a hard time breathing through that mask. If they're sick, if they have respiratory symptoms, what they should be wearing is a surgical type of mask. That's going to protect the world from them. Well, I think I may start carrying them and handing them out on airplanes when I hear people sneezing next to me. What a great idea. <laughs> I think, though, the other point you brought up is one of my biggest bugaboos is if you're feeling sick, if you have a fever, if you have a cough, you have a, a, a runny nose, if it's just a common cold, please stay home. Just, you know. Do the world a favor. There's, there's a lot of discussion about vaccines and some people believe in them, some people don't, but believe me, staying home, separating yourself using what we call social distancing is another great way to protect other people in your community, be that in your household or your neighbors or your school or your work site, please stay home. Now let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Your brand is so much more than a logo. It's your customer's first impression, the full experience you give your audience. It's what makes you memorable. To tap into your maximum branding potential, check out saxmedia.com. So one thing I find a little ironic is that the public has this hyper-elevated concern about coronavirus, um, but they're almost nonchalant about the flu. Why do you think that is? Uh, it's new. I mean, I, I, I've looked at the coronavirus and, and you know, I was kind of having an initial same kind of reaction. Like, why are we... Why are we doing so much about coronavirus when we've got all this flu? And I think the numbers I, I last saw with flu is that we've had about 25 million, 26, 25 million 
cases of influenza just this season, and we're not done yet. It'll go on till at least March. Um, and I believe 14,000 deaths due okay. to flu this season. And when I really sat down and I thought about it, there are three reasons why I think we're taking such measures against coronavirus. The first is we know absolutely nothing about this virus. It's new, it's novel, it's kind of related to SARS, it's kind of related to MERS, which we've got some experience with, not in this so much in this country, but worldwide. But really, we don't know anything. Whereas with the flu, we know it's seasonal, it's going to go away in March, it's, it'll happen in the southern hemisphere during the su our summer months, their winter months. You know, we, we kind of know what to expect with flu. We know how it's going to behave in a population. The second thing about coronavirus is since it's new, absolutely everybody is susceptible. It, 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 nobody's immune you know, unless they happen to be somehow innately resistant to the virus, and we don't know that those people exist or not. So, so everybody's susceptible, so it can go through a population theoretically quite quickly, and that seems to be what's happening in China. One of the, one of the terms that I think listeners should become somewhat familiar with is in epidemiology we call it r naught and you see it written as a capital r with a little subscript zero so r naught and r naught is a mathematical number that describes the average number of people who could become infected from a single infected person in a population that is not infected and not immune so uh, basically what we've got with coronavirus right now. Calculations for coronavirus are ranging right now. I've seen 1.6 as a low to about 5.6 or 6.6, .6, I believe it was. And so that means one person could theoretically infect as many as 6.6 .6 people around them in a, in a totally naive population. Influenza tends to run around 2, 2.5 to 3.5. So um, I, if I remember correctly, <laughs> it's been a while. Um, so R naught is influenced by how people behave in a population, how much they move around, uh, the means of transmission, and coronavirus appears to be by respiratory droplets. So about three feet, four feet out, you can you can uh, be subject to being infected. Um, so all of that, that plays a role in why do we respond to coronavirus? It appears to be rather infectious. Mm -hmm. It'll move quickly. Will it change genetically as it, as it moves? Right now, it doesn't appear to be very lethal. It's more lethal than flu in terms of the case fatality rate. It's running, yesterday I calculated it to be about 2.5, 2.6%. Flu is usually about less than 1%. So um, about 0.05, I think. And um, so it, it, it's not as lethal as SARS was. SARS was about 10% at the end of the, the epidemic. So it, it's got a lethality that could become worse at a moment's notice. We just don't know. Yeah. There's so much we don't know. So it's worth taking a, 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 an aggressive stance against this, this virus entering our country and, and the world. The third reason for responding is that we have no vaccine. 
with influenza, we do have a vaccine. Some years it's good, some years it's not as good. <laughs> but with coronavirus, we don't have a vaccine, and it'll be quite a while before we ever get one. So let's follow up on that. Uh, we did a survey recently of Florida voters uh, to see if they had gotten flu vaccine. And about half of the people had and, and half hadn't. Of the, the half who did not get vaccinated, a third said they didn't do it because there's just not a great track record of the vaccine working. A quarter of them said, I never get the flu, so I don't need to. And a similar amount said that they forgot or procrastinated. How do you, uh, through communication, through uh, public health messaging, uh, how, how do you persuade people to, to get past those barriers and, um, and get the vaccine every year? Oh, I wish I had a great answer to that question. <laughs> I worked for influenza for the CDC for several years, and, and trying to get people to get the flu vaccine, um, it's always a challenge. It, it, it is. So current recommendations this year, we have, this year we have vaccines that are like for everybody. We've got trivalent, three kinds of, of flu uh, strains in it. We've got quadrivalent with four kinds of flu strains in it. We've got killed vaccines. We've got recombinant vaccines where only a small piece of the, of the gene for the flu virus is used and we've got uh, attenuated live vaccines that are used intranasally so we've got a vaccine for just about every age group and lifestyle <laughs> that's out there and and still uh, you know 50 percent actually I was kind of somewhat Better happy with that <laughs> <laughs> yeah um I would like to get it up higher the the comment that it doesn't have a great track record, I have to say, you know, that that's probably, there's some truth to that. Some years it's a good year, a match, and other years it's a not. So the way this works is that there are two meetings worldwide. They're called VRBAC, and I, I can't even begin to remember what the letters stand for. Um, but in January, I believe, is the VRBAC for the Northern Hemisphere, where experts from all over the world, from Asia, from U.S., from, uh, you know, uh, Europe, they all get together and they look at the data on what viruses were circulating the previous flu season. And from that, they try to predict what are going to be the major flu strains for the next flu season. And then they start building their vaccine. What what happens with some strains even a little bit more than others is that from the time the decision is made, we're going to include this strain and the vaccine production starts and then the flu season starts is that the bugs may have changed a little bit. And so what happens is that some years we don't have what we call a good match between the vaccine and the circulating strains. It's a best guess. It's a, it's a best guess. It's a predictor. Now, one thing CDC is doing, and, and I haven't been working with this for a while, so I, I really am not an, an expert on this, but it's on the CDC website, if you go to it to learn more about it, is a real-time flu predictor model. So they've got several groups across the nation that are providing real-time information, and they have several teams that are taking that information and trying to predict 
what'll happen. And they actually have a little contest between all these teams to see who predicts most accurately. And, uh, and there are several teams that are doing quite well. And that may help us in the future, I would expect, in terms of uh, getting a, a, a really good match between circulating influenza and the vaccine. So besides the beliefs that are based on fact, then you also have the myths to deal with. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that's difficult, too. In our survey, one in five people said that um, the flu shot can give you the flu. And um, there were 8% who believed that flu shots are a conspiracy or a scam. And I know you as a a global disease uh, warrior also deal with myths in in the greater population. uh, Of course, the anti-vaxxer movement is an example of that in the U.S., but um, the belief by uh, some in Africa and the Middle East that health workers are trying to sterilize the population Mm -hmm or spread HIV, I mean, wild rumors, uh, that can have serious health consequences, as we've seen with the the rise of childhood illnesses in the U.S. that were previously thought to be under control. Correct. And and some of those myths, some of them can be dealt with if if, if public health officials are really committed to doing their job. You, you brought up the polio virus that was uh, some of the imams in, in Africa especially were saying that that polio vaccine was designed to promote sterility and, and so on and, and that it was a, a Christian or non-Islamic uh, uh, effort to, to um, reduce the, the Muslim population. And so one thing we did or the World Health Organization did, I believe, it was them, um, was that uh, we had the polio vaccine made by a Muslim nation. So vaccine from that is produced by Muslim hands is given to Muslim Again, children. trustworthy source. Again. Now that took some extra work and, and I imagine some extra cost. I, I don't have uh, details on the cost, but, but that's the kind of step it, it takes to deal with that kind of, of mythology. Some of the, I, you know, I've, I've spent part of my life arguing with the anti-vacciners. Um, and, and I have used my innate intellectual ability to look at data and analyze and make a decision for myself. I believe in vaccines. I, I believe very much that it's not a belief. It's for me. It's it, the data is there, but I've also come to realize that for some people, it's 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 a belief. It's a fervent belief, and and that I, even with all my data, I am never going to change their mind. And so, I came to start promoting when when, when I was state epi that we have to accept these people where they're at. And, and respect their beliefs. And so vaccination is not the only way to prevent a disease. We have several behavioral uh, interventions that we can do. So if you don't believe in a vaccine, I disagree with you respectfully, but I respect your right to believe that. And if you would do things like wash your hands frequently, if you'll stay home when you're sick, if you'll cover your cough appropriately, dispose of tissues immediately when you cough or sneeze, do everything that you can to prevent transmission of an infectious agent from you 
to the community, or if you can do everything you can to make sure you don't get uh, an infectious agent from the community, then I think we're all in the same boat here. The, the main boat is to prevent disease. I'm so glad you said that because I, I, I think it's been so interesting to look at the the public health communication around the coronavirus and you know we're seeing uh, use of a lot of videos and animations uh, because we know that that's the what people are consuming information in, in that mode more than others uh, but so much of it has focused on how to wash your hands properly and it's funny people are looking for the silver bullet and you know the hidden information and and it's so basic that people just don't wash their hands right. <laughs> Every so often, it, it used to be, I haven't seen one in quite a while, but there used to be a company that would just hang out in public bathrooms and count how many people did not wash their hands. <laughs> <laughs> That's not the job I <laughs> oh, want. Oh, no. <laughs> it was um, somewhat surprising, the number of people, the percentage of people who did not wash their hands after using the bathroom or... Um, you know, and, and I, I mean, I've taken actually to carrying when I travel, I, I carry wipes with me to make sure I always have something to wash my hands with or even to wipe down surfaces. Um, people can cough. I mean, it used to be you would, you know, my mother taught me to like cough in my hand and stuff. And now we cough in our elbow. And the, the coughing in your hand, if you think about it, you cough in your hand, you those bugs are on your hand, and then you use the handrail to go down the stairs, and then I follow behind you, and I use the handrail, and I'm picking it up, and I wipe my eyes or my, you know, rub my nose or something, and I'm infected. So I think people need to remember that bugs are all around us all the time, and not to create fear. We, we usually maneuver through the day pretty well without um, any major instances of getting sick, but we can protect ourselves quite easily with some simple behavioral changes, and the most important one is wash your hands and keep your hands away from your face. You know, we talked earlier about uh, reaching different populations through communication, and I'm a big believer in the power of communication. If it's if the message is right, if the messenger is trustworthy, if you're reaching people the, in, in the places that they seek out information, and as in the information age where you have such segmentation, and you know where younger people go for information is different than a baby boomer, for instance. But one of the things I, I've found so interesting uh, in the battle against the coronavirus is Reddit is an extremely influential platform, uh, but it's it's user moderated. So uh, you know it, myths and rumors and you know can can really spread like wildfire. But one of the things I was so impressed uh, in how they're handling the coronavirus is that there are 30 epidemiologists who have kind of taken over the subreddit community of like 1.2 million people who are in that space talking about coronavirus, spending hours every day flagging misinformation and correcting it and being an influence in that group because they know that they're, these are people who are interested in coronavirus, who are going to be spreading information. And so right there at, at that little hotbed of interest, they're uh, being a, a voice for, for truth and data and um, a, a trustworthy expert voice. So it's uh, impressive to see the, the public health community uh, evolve uh, and morph as quickly as maybe the viruses are morphing to use communication tools effectively to reach people. 
that's great. I, I was not aware of that. I'm, I'm not very familiar with Reddit. <laughs> I'm, uh, but I, I think one of the exciting things for me, and, and I mean, I, I don't know if you'll use it. I, I'm pushing 70 years old, so I'm in the older generation. But I'm fascinated with all these different ways of communicating today. And, and, and I, I really look to the younger generation to help us with how do we communicate to different subpopulations, different um, age groups, different occupations, different um, just different walks of life. In some cases, you know, podcasts are good. I grew up with TV and radio, and now I don't even own a TV set. I, I get most of my information from the internet and, and listen to, you know, uh, podcasts and so on. But Instagram, Twitter feeds, all of those have become a really major part of communicating through public health that I think is essential. I wish I understood it better, but I think I'm, I'm excited that uh, public health will be in the hands of some really creative young people coming along the line. Well, you're a wonderful communicator, and you do a great job of translating the complex <laughs> into terms that people can understand. So thank you so much for spending time with us on You've Been Talking Today. Oh, this has really been fun. Thank you so much, Michelle, for inviting me. I hope you'll come back. I hope so, too. Today, You've Been Talking Public Health with my guest, Florida's former state epidemiologist, Dr. Anna Likas. If you want to read more about our conversation, visit saxmedia.com slash podcast and make sure to subscribe for more episodes on communication breakthroughs in unexpected places.